Welcome to A Long Time in Finance, the podcast that takes a sharp and sometimes acerbic look at the often absurd world of money through the eyes of two journalists who've, well, spent quite a long time in finance. That's me, Jonathan Ford, and him, Neil Collins. Hello and welcome back to A Long Time in Finance. This is the second of our series of two episodes on the energy crisis. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the UK and the fact that prices of gas and electricity are set to rocket this spring. And we're joined to discuss these issues by John Kemp, who is the Senior Energy Analyst at Reuters News. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you. That's very good to have you. So I'm going to start by quickly setting the scene um, where we are. So we've been through a, a, a period of gas shortages in the last few months, which have exposed all sorts of problems, an absence of storage, even low renewables production, the solar and wind energy, has exposed the UK to a big energy squeeze. Wholesale prices have rocketed. Spot prices for electricity are now about £200 per megawatt hour versus around £50 pre-pandemic. And gas prices are up by pretty much the same, around 172p per therm versus around 50p before the crisis. Large numbers of energy suppliers have already gone bust because their fixed price consumer deals have left them exposed to rising wholesale prices. And if you convert all of this into household bills, and those are capped in the UK, the price could rise from 1,277 a year last year to around £1,900 when the price cap is reviewed in April. And that's a rise of almost 50%, which... Sounds pretty grim. Well, it's beyond the reach of, uh, of the poorest fifths, let's say, of the population, because it's a huge part of their day-to-day -day expenditure. It's not politically realistic just to allow it to happen and uh, the, these people to be hit with bills which are so far beyond anything they could have reasonably planned for that uh, there would be riots in the street. OK, and politically, of course, we are also facing local elections in May and the government, last time I looked, wasn't having a particularly happy time at the moment. So they'll no doubt be a bit worried about what the consequences could be. I mean, we had, even in 2019, so before the pandemic, before the rise in energy prices, uh, government data shows that over three million households in England were in what the government describes as fuel poverty, yeah. uh, hit by low incomes and low energy efficiency in their homes. Uh, relatively low levels of fuel poverty in the in the more prosperous southeast and southwestern regions. Um, but fuel poverty rates rise to 17 percent in sort of Yorkshire and Humberside, the northwest, so the, and the Red Wall area. Absolutely, some of the most some of the most politically sensitive parts of the UK have already have very high levels of energy poverty, and obviously, uh, an increase in bills of that scale um, will push millions more homes into into that situation. So various plans are being discussed to soften the blow politically. One is the Labour Party advocating cutting VAT on domestic energy from 5% to zero, government lending money directly to energy companies, a sort of contract for difference mechanism where if the gas price is very high, the government gives money to the energy companies and they pay it back when the gas price falls. 
And there's even been talk of a windfall tax on utilities to subsidise consumers to keep prices down. The question, John, for you is, does any of this make any sense? There are only two basic groups of people who can pay for the increase in energy prices. Um, one is bill payers, uh, all the other is taxpayers. Um, they're sort of the same. They're sort of the same. <laughs> the main difference is that obviously um, getting bill payers, putting it on, putting it on domestic energy bills is, is quite regressive. Um, the poorest pay a much higher proportion of their income. Yep. Um, if you move it into general taxation, uh, you can obviously make it much more progressive. You can fund it through income tax, for example. Um, but it does become much more politically uh, obvious and it becomes more politically contentious. Is there a sort of, what's the least harmful way of intervening? So you've got a few options and I suspect that the government will go for a blend of them. You could increase the availability and generosity of the existing subsidies such as the warm homes discount you could... what is the warm homes discount uh i think it is a subsidy to the poorest uh slice of uh home occupiers right uh and is currently paid for by recycling it onto everybody else's gas bills right Okay, so, so you, could, you can you, you can jack increase, that up a bit. You could increase the, the you could increase the availability. So targeted of sort of discounts. Yeah, um, you could eliminate some of the some of the some or all of the VAT that is being put on bills. Mm. You could take off some of the what they call the policy costs that are designed to support environmental obligations and to subsidise um, payments to to poorer households. So do you mean that you mean putting some proportion of the energy bill that or electricity bills that come from renewable subsidies, for example, or subsidies onto general taxation, just yeah, saying we'll pay absolutely. for that? Okay. You yes. can take it off the bill and put it onto general taxation. Uh, you could uh, have a general rise in 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 benefits because, as I say, fuel poverty is about um, not only low energy efficiency and uh, but it's also about low income. So you could raise benefits, mm -hmm. um, or you could, as you as you pointed out, you could basically uh, the government could arrange bridging finance from the banks to allow the energy companies to recover these costs over a much longer period of time over say a sort of three five year period and therefore sort of spread out the increase of bills okay i think that that actually is politically the least unattractive of the options what lending because it's it's the easiest one to disguise the real cost of and i'm sure that the administration would be encouraged by that that most people won't understand especially if it's done by some by some prestigious contracts for differences uh, which people will not grasp but actually it'll be a subsidy which to the to the companies which will probably never be repaid well it will obviously depend on what happens to energy prices they stay very high for a long time it will be uh you know, the the slate could get rather rather <laughs> rather expensive. For... <laughs> uh, John, do you think that the, the the public consciousness of the size of the green subsidies has sunk in yet? Uh, probably not. But I think there's two separate issues here. So, at the moment, what they call the policy costs, which is sort of social environmental obligations, is about twenty five percent of the bill. So. Electricity of, bill of, of of your electricity bill. So your thirteen hundred pound dual fuel bill at the moment, about a quarter or less of that is 
the environmental and social policy obligation. That's a pretty big chunk. Dual fuel is gas and electricity. The policy yes. costs 25% just of the electricity bit, which is 900 quid times 0.25, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So it's a relatively... So you've got two separate problems. You've got... The problem that we have at the moment, which is that 25% of the bill is is environmental and policy costs, but you've all, and social policy costs, but you've then got the fact that bills are going to go up by another five or six hundred pounds. Yeah. So even if you took all of the environmental and social obligations off the bill, it does not deal with the fact that it would not it would it would blunt, but it would not eliminate the fact that bills are going to go up by a great deal uh, from April. So it is it would be a partial solution. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't stop households facing a very large increase in bills. You know, potentially in three months' time. We could also form part of a longer-term solution because we're going to come in a second to the question about. Obviously, we, we, we're talking here about what to do in the near term to keep bills from rocketing. I think Neil's saying basically that lending to companies is the. Well, I'm not sure you really approve of it, but you think it's the most <laughs> likely outcome because it's the one that the public will be most bamboozled by. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, okay. I think that the removal of the green subsidies into general taxation would probably uh, rank alongside it. They're probably going to have to do more do than more one, one thing. They yeah, may yeah, even have right. to scrap the VAT as well as doing those two other things well, to, to keep yeah. the increase down to whatever is deemed to be a politically bearable amount. Well, I, I would say that doing t tinkering with tax rates is, is the most, I would say, the most difficult because once you've done it, once you've taken VAT on domestic fuel from 5%, which is already fairly low to zero, no government is going to find it very easy to say at some any point in the future, oh, yeah, we're going to bring back VAT on domestic fuel because it will be incredibly unpopular. And it's just what we saw with the fuel price escalator from 2000 when... Petrol prices went up too much and the government said, oh, we better stop pushing this up because it's going to make us very unpopular. And now it's 20 years on. It's never gone up. <laughs> so it's not much of an escalator. It's one of those broken escalators <laughs> you've come across on the London Underground. Needs fixing. Yes, quite. But but OK, so so we've sort of touched on that. We've been through, I think, the options on the short term. And we, we were talking about mix and match loans, benefit advantages um, and other stuff. Let's think about the longer term. And if you're the government, you're sitting here looking at the energy system that we have and wondering what to do about it in the longer term. What's what's your thought there, John? What, what do you think the challenges are? You have the same challenges actually in the longer term that you've got in the short term, which is you have a you have a, a political commitment to a net zero target which involve part of which involves um, the widespread electrification of all energy in the home so there'll be no more domestic gas combustion. Everything will be delivered through electricity. That means a whole new set of appliances. It also means a lot better insulation. Um, and the difficulty is that those are huge capital costs. And the, you know, the poorer quarter or the poorer half of the population simply can't afford that. Uh, so you have to find some way of providing more policy support to them and again that comes back to there's only two ways of doing this you either do it through the bill uh, or you do it through through the taxpayer yeah uh, what about trying to stimulate the supply side by as i said last week abandoning the demonization of the oil companies and allowing uh, more exploration and production from our uk sources 
and finding out whether there really is a cornucopia of gas under northwest England. So there's a couple of there's a couple of challenges. One is that you'd have to you'd have to walk back from the net zero target, um, which at the moment the government doesn't seem to want to do. Um, you could certainly try and stimulate some more oil and gas production in the North Sea. Um, the difficulty with that is that it's it, it operates in a global market, so it wouldn't necessarily reduce prices in the UK. Um, it would have a, a very marginal impact on global prices. Um, in terms of fracking onshore, onshore oil and gas production, the the challenge there is that it's probably very high. It's very high cost. We don't we we know there is some oil and gas down there. We're not really sure about the extent of the reserves. In any event, it's likely to be very high cost. It's not likely to be very competitive with fracking, you know, fracking in fracking in in leafy, highly urbanised or suburban Surrey is never going to be cost competitive with with uh, fracking in the in the sort of empty, open, arid plains of Western Texas. The Permian Basin. The Permian Basin. If you've looked at photos of the Beautiful. Permian it's Basin, like, it's, perfect. A, it's a sort of semi-desert. Rural <laughs> paradise. Yes. No, I, th I was thinking actually of red walls like fracking. Um, again, yes. I mean, these are communities that have had much more of a history of mining and mineral extraction, so it might be a little bit more politically acceptable. But I think... It, it, I think it's difficult to imagine a circumstances in which onshore oil and gas production in the UK would be cost competitive. Okay. And that, I think, makes it very difficult to see that it would that it would ever fly. It might fly, for example, when we had oil prices at one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel sort of a decade ago, there was a lot of interest in onshore production. But the problem is we, you know, it, we know that prices don't stay at those levels throughout the cycle as soon as the price slumps. Um, we find that those projects get cancelled or interest in them sort of disappears. Okay, so you touched on the, you touched on the commitment to net zero. Obviously, what we've seen recently is it's been accelerated because at the COP climate conference in Glasgow, the government suddenly tossed out the idea that it would all happen by 2035 rather than 2050. Uh, so... It's definitely not being walked back from at the moment. Fortunately, but... the people who gave that commitment will be long gone by then. <laughs> they... So it'll be somebody else's yeah, the problem. Government's popularity is going to net zero at the moment. Faster <laughs> <laughs> than the country is. Um, the but 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 um, but I want to bring it back to so so my great friend Dieter has uh, has called this the first Dieter Sorry? Helm has called this the first net zero who is, energy who is your great friend Dieter? Dieter Helm very distinguished energy economist has called this the first net zero energy crisis so he has a plan he says first of all what we talked about socialize the legacy costs put them on the taxes he talks about splitting out the system operators from the network so they can kind of not only be a sort of referee but also try and keep costs down for the consumer Equivalent firm power. So he's saying make renewables operators responsible for actually producing regular power, dispatchable power onto the grid. So you can just flip a switch and it comes on and off rather than what we do at the moment, which is it's when the wind blows, we'll give you as much power as we can. And when it isn't tough, tough luck. And lastly, he talks about carbon pricing. I don't know. What do you make of those? Do you think those are realistic? Do you think there's any sense in trying to go down this path? I think they're all sensible. They're all sensible ideas, and they're all deliverable. Yeah. The problem is that they don't address the scale of the problem. Um, they don't address the fact that you know we have we have uh, some of the oldest 
least energy efficient housing in Europe, um, which yeah. we, and we need to insulate that. We need to dramatically reduce uh, domestic energy consumption in order to meet these net zero targets. So we need a, a much more ambitious package of, of policy measures and it, it, it all comes back to who pays for that yeah. it, there, and there are only two routes there's the bills um, or it has to be paid for by the taxpayer prices therefore you think prices will these are going to be big bills we're going to have to pay I think in the end we will have to find a way that much of this will be shifted onto the taxpayer because I've got a parallel I'm going to bowl at you which is is North Sea gas and if you go back to the 1960s and 70s when everyone was transferred from town gas to North Sea gas. Basically, the gas company, British Gas, simply wrote to people in sequence and said, we will be coming to your house on the 15th of September 1972, whenever it was, and we're going to change you over to natural gas. There was no option. There was no kind of, here's an incentive to have to buy some natural gas. As the only and, one and, here and, and, who and, can and, remember this... Okay. The, the prospect, the, the project was a pretty impressive And one. it worked well. But, but it was absolute kid, greasy kid stuff compared to yeah. insulation. What, there were two visits, because I can remember them happening. Okay. And the first one, to find out what you'd got. And the second one was to come in and change the gas jets on, on your equipment. And that's all it needed. And then you had a small lull where there was no gas. And then when you were told to turn it on again, it was natural gas. But as far as you were concerned, it was exactly the same. The idea that that is any sort of template for insulating your house, you know, knocking out windows and replacing the double glazing, um, cavity walls and all these other fancy things. Uh, it, it's just Chalk and cheese. I'm sorry, Jonathan. You've sort of slightly missed the point that I was trying to make, but it's. <laughs> but there we go. The point I was trying to make was yeah, only is, facts, is, facts, facts. Is, That's all I is, had. Is compulsion versus option the way we've gone about these green home whatever uh, insulation, you know, blitzkriegs, and they've been tried on several occasions by various governments, and they've all attracted almost no take up. And the question, therefore, is, will you? I mean. If this is if this is a condition that needs to be achieved to get to you know the electrification that the government is proposing, how are we going to? We I don't see how we are ever going to get there unless oh. you have a degree of unless you have a degree of this is no longer an option and we'll give you an incentive. You've got to do it, otherwise whatever will bulldoze your house. I don't know what you. I don't know what the compulsion is, but the mm. I don't see how it can work. That's I suppose that's the point I'm driving at. Yeah, it's a very difficult one because you, what you're asking people to do is spend a large amount of money up front, capital expenditure, yeah. in in exchange for a, a a relatively modest reduction in their bills that yeah. will pay back over, you know, with a lot of these things over 15, 25, 30 plus years. Yeah. Um, so it's very unlikely that most households will voluntarily yeah. uh, do that. Yeah. So you're right, I think some degree of compulsion will be necessary how you dress that up whether you do that in the form of of <laughs> changes to building regulations etc you know which is how usually the government compels upgrades you point you'll point commissars but, to start with yes. but it's very difficult. <laughs> i mean neil, neil, neil makes a really valid point which is that, that you know very often you hear people talk about oh well, we, we managed to move from manufactured gas to north sea gas in a yep. relatively short space of time yep. but that was a very simple 20 years over 
That was an incredibly simple changeover because we already had all the gas infrastructure in place. All we were doing was changing the burner tips on people's appliances. What you're talking about in terms of the government's net zero uh, plans is is much more fundamental. Involves a huge amount of more infrastructure spending. Okay, we're we're running out of time. Two questions, and then one is, what can we do? To, you know, if we, we we've been slightly pouring cold water over all of this, but if you were in charge, the czar of the energy system, what could be done? Do you think it's it's possible to get there? And if so, how? And or do you think this is target is just insane? I, and will lead to huge bills. I think the reality is that the net zero there is a, there is a growing gap between the rhetoric of the net zero target and the actual reality on the ground in terms of real policies that are being delivered. At the moment, I think we are nowhere. We're not even close to being on track to meet that. But net is zero there a target. policy, a, rash, a rational policy, a, a politically deliverable policy that could get there? And if so, what is it? I think you would need an enormous amount of taxpayer support yeah. to re to to retrofit homes uh, with a lot more insulation and to strip out the gas supply network and replace it with an electric an electricity based one, which is probably a twenty year project minimum. Yeah. Which means you're it runs you've already missed twenty thirty five. I mean, yeah, and, and we're and we're quite happy to have five p on income tax to pay for it. Any thoughts? <laughs> he doesn't want to say anything right on that, <laughs> on that note on that somewhat contentious note I think we're going to have to stop that was a long time in finance with Neil Collins and Jonathan Ford the words were by us and the podcast was edited by Teddy Phillips if you enjoyed listening please subscribe to the series on Apple, Spotify wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week on Friday morning with another edition. See you then.